Welcome, I'm Father Mitch Packwell. Welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. And our guest tonight joins us at a very important time in the struggle for the sanctity of human life in this country. With an anticipated ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court pertaining to the constitutionality of the decision Roe versus Wade, which is expected to be handed down sometime within the next six weeks. We're not sure when, but within the next six weeks. Along with, there is an uptick in attacks against churches and pro-life advocates. So we need to be prepared. We need peaceful, reasoned arguments that are based on good science, the law, social justice, and a morality that everyone can accept. So joining us tonight via Skype from Miami, Florida, is the author of a brand new book called Speaking for the Unborn, 32nd Pro-Life Rebuttals to Pro-Choice Arguments. So please welcome our guest, Dr. Stephen a. Christie. Dr. Christie, welcome. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Now, one of the things that I want to address uh, about you right away is that you are a medical doctor. What's your specialty? So I'm a, I'm a radiologist. I okay. spend about half my, my, half my day is spent doing GI gastrointestinal work, and half my day is doing cancer work. Okay. And you also... Uh, are a lawyer, correct? Yes, I'm a member of the Florida Bar. I went to, to law school before I became a physician. Uh -huh. And right now my, my, my legal work is just to prepare, is used really just to prepare my, my arguments for, for books like this and a pro-life cause. Okay, so for you, the, the legal background, you, because you've passed the bar, you, you're accepted at the uh, bar in Florida, you could you know, take on trials, but you're using this as a tool to help in the pro-life struggle, correct? Absolutely. I, I practice medicine full-time uh, where I enjoy helping patients directly, hands-on. Mm -hmm. um, and my, my legal work only in a, in a less direct way is to f help facilitate that process in, in the various ways that I, in the, in the various avenues that I approach my life, including this pro-life movement. Now, let me also let our audience in on another part of your life. You were not always pro-life. Is that true? Right, right. I, I grew up in a secular progressive household. Actually, I should back up. So um, usually when I do, I do a lot of public speaking on this subject. And when I, when I speak, I'm usually introduced. They make a big fuss that I'm a doctor and I'm a lawyer. And, th and those things are great because I've studied embryology and I've studied the science. Um, and, and, you know, that I've, I have five kids, so I know a bit about babies and pregnancy. Uh, and being married 25 years, I, I know a fair amount about, about what it's like for a woman to balance career and family life. But, but really, my most important credential, I think, for speaking on this, on this issue is the fact that I spent the first 35 years of my life as a secular pro-choice liberal. So I know exactly what, why, and how the other side thinks about abortion. And having lived in both the pro-choice and the pro-life worlds, I have a fairly unique vantage point from which to address these issues. I, I like to say that when I was 
when I was pro-choice, I learned the arguments. But when I became pro-life, I learned the truth. And, and this book and, and its accompanying website are that truth. Just so folks also have some clarity on this. When you say you knew the arguments, did you just sort of know what they were and they're in the background? Or were you the kind of person that might make arguments in favor of the pro-abortion, pro-choice position? You know, it's a wonderful question. So I grew up in a secular progressive household uh, as an atheist. I attended a very pricey progressive high school where it was understood that everyone who was educated and sophisticated, and if you were a thinker, you were obviously pro-choice. In fact, it was so obvious, we actually couldn't articulate why. And conversely, pro-lifers were obviously uneducated, unsophisticated, mm -hmm. and, um, and backwards thinking, and probably intolerant Jesus freaks. And all through, all, all through law school, I was pro-choice, even in, through the beginning of medical school. But if you had asked me why, I couldn't have articulated my position. I would have thrown out a cliche or an ad hominem personal attack, called you a misogynist. Uh, but what I've learned is the overwhelming majority of people in, in the pro-choice movement cannot articulate a defense for their position, um, which is because they really rely on cliches. They rely on personal attacks. Um, and. Uh, our side on the other side, the pro-life, you know, we rely on facts, science, and truth, which which wins it every time. I, I could, if if you're interested, I could tell you what what changed me during the medical. Yeah, process. please do. No, that I, I think this is important because <clears throat> we also have to be alert that people on the pro-life side do not make caricatures of the pro abortion and pro-choice side, that we can't, you know, show the same disrespect and turn them into cartoonish figures who, you know, we, just because we don't know them, we just attack their person rather than deal with their arguments. So it's important to understand this for all sides and have uh, serious communication. Absolutely. You know, in the book, before we ever get to the arguments, we talk about strategy. We talk about where we speak, and as you're referring to now, how we speak, before we ever get to the what we speak, the actual words. And, and when we talk about the where we speak, you know, there's, there's wonderful people in the pro-life movement who go into stadiums, and they address, you know, hostile crowds, and that's fantastic, the Ben Shapiros of the world that can do that. And there's legislators in, 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 in state houses that, that, you know, draft laws, and that's wonderful. And there's appellate attorneys who argue in court, and that's wonderful. But but the rest of us, like me, where we work is in the ordinary, everyday circumstances of our lives, with mm -hmm. our friends, our neighbors, and our family. And and what's really important is the point you made is how we speak, and that we always are charitable. It's easy to get hot under the collar with issues like this, but we have to always speak with kindness and compassion. Now, as I told you, I grew up secular, so my childhood friends are still pro-choice. My parents and sisters are still pro-choice. So when I speak to somebody or if I debate somebody, I think to myself, I'm speaking to my mom. I'm speaking to my dad. And how would I speak to them? I speak kindly, with affection, and with tenderness. And, and I always say we're not winning arguments. We're winning hearts, which is really like mm -hmm. our, our apostolate with our faith. And, and a lot of people say to me, well, what does that mean? We're winning hearts. What's that mean? And, and what I tell people is when I'm having a conversation, what I like to hear, what I'm hoping to hear is somebody say to me, Steve, you know what? 
that's interesting. I, I never really thought about it that way before. And to me, that's the sound of the heart opening up the truth. And, and that's the strategy I think we all have to have. Sure. Uh, sure. You know, if we go there and stick them in the eye like they want to stick us in the eye, we're not we're not winning hearts. We're not advancing our cause. And, and there's 62 million dead children that, that need us to speak for them. I, I think that this is uh, an important part of this moment because right now there is some very hostile behavior taking place against pro-life people. It's very hostile. And, uh, and the threats of <coughs> violence are lurking in the background. Uh, and we have to be very careful that uh, we want to have folks converted to be pro-life. And there are many, many pro-choice people who have seen this in a completely different light and really changed their hearts. Uh, Dr. Nathan Bern, uh, uh, or Bernard Nathanson, I should say, Dr. Bernard Nathanson being a classic example of an abortionist, but many, many others. And so this conversion of heart is our goal. And, you know, and the, the peace of Christ and the truth of Christ is our goal. So this is, uh, that's why I wanted to bring this part of it up too. Yeah, absolutely. And I engage with people all the time. I'm not a social media person, but just for the book itself, I have a Twitter account and, and I, I, I get attacked viciously on Twitter. Sure. And my instinct is to fight back and I don't allow myself. I think if I was 10 years younger, I might've, I might've been immature and done that. But I respond with respect and with kindness. And I'm surprised even people that first attack me, when I, res when I respond respectfully and kindly and try to find some area of agreement, I find the majority of those people convert, not necessarily fully to my cause, but convert to being kind, respectful, and, and forget that the social media tends to force us into, into hateful and confrontational postures. Right. So I think, right. I, in that regard, I think it's optimistic. When we, when we speak with compassion and kindness, we can make a, we can make a real difference. Sure. Now... In terms of this, you, you use your training in medicine and in the law. Uh, a, a great combination, very serious disciplines and, uh, you know, rigorous uh, as well for both of them. And so to have that kind of background is useful. How is it that you start to approach arguments with 30-second rebuttals? Well, when I drafted them, each one was about three minutes long. Okay. Uh, and I began to whittle them down, whittle them down, because the average attention span for it's, studies have shown is between 30 and 60 seconds. And I want to leave them with one point or maybe two points. Mm -hmm. So it's trial and error and, and, and good old-fashioned sweat to get this down to a, to a level where it's useful. Sure. And then I, of course, send these out to friends and, and colleagues who have helped me, and, and I credit everybody in this book, you know, and many, most places in this book, I'm much more editor than I am author. I don't know if this is interesting to you, but, 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 but for me, there was a moment when I changed. Um, and, and I think it, it reflects a change that a lot of people are capable of doing. And when I was in medical school, um, you know, we learn about facts and, we, and science and, and embryology. And, and in a word, we learn about the truth, you know, and Shakespeare says the truth will out. And we learn in, in, that there's a definition of life, that it's not a, it's not a matter of philosophy, it's not politics, it's not religion. 
um, that it, what is alive, what's living, is a purely scientific question that science has fully answered. And it's spelled out in every embryology book and every medical book used at medical schools throughout the world. Um, and there was this precise moment for me when it really came, came to a head. I was, I was in an anatomy room in a lab late at night, and there was an ante room off to the side. And it was covered in dust, a room nobody ever went into. And there was a cabinet up against the wall. And I walked over to the cabinet, and on shelves were jars with formaldehyde and babies in different stages of development, embryos and fetuses. And clearly, this cabinet had been discarded for years and years. Nobody had seen it. And I stared looking at this. Remember, I, I was pro-choice. And I became, I became horrified at how irreverent these babies were being treated, just discarded and left on this on these shelves. So the next day, I went and found our embryology professor, who was a wonderful professor. And I said to her, I confessed to her, I said, I, I'm really horrified at the irreverence with which these babies are being left on shelves in a discarded room. And it was fascinating to me because she grew agitated, she grew angry, she pointed at me, she says, they are not babies. They're embryos and fetuses, they were never alive, never alive, never alive. And, and I, I backed up, I froze, I looked at her, she looked at me, and, and like Shakespeare and Hamlet, the lady doth protest too much. It hit me like a ton of bricks that I knew what the truth was. She could protest all she wants. It hit me like a ton of bricks. My heart had been moved. Interestingly, I knew she knew the truth too, and it horrified her as well. And that's that. these are the stories that happen. So we have to be aware that, that hearts can open, and we have to look for the opportunity to, to, to open them. Yeah, yeah. So let's take a look at some of the ways you approach the issues. What would be yeah. an example of the pro-choice, pro-abortion uh, stance? What would be, give an example of one of their opening salvos. Yeah, so the, the classic ones fall in the category, it's not alive, you know, uh, and that we've talked about a little bit, you know, it's, that sure. it's a philosophical question. It's just a clump of cells. Um, and, and we can talk about the rebuttals. We, in the book, we offer multiple rebuttals so that you can find the one you're comfortable with. And right, well, let's start off with that, that one, because sure, that, sure. So when, that sure. is very basic. A lot of people Absolutely. are told it's just a clump of cells and it's not really alive. What and, and do you really, say they, to and that? They, and sure, and most people don't say it out of malice. They say it out of ignorance. And so, yeah, and right. I'm, in the, I'm in the lucky position. Of, I'm in the lucky position of being a physician and a scientist. So I tell them, I said, look, what's alive is 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 a scientific question. It's not a religious question. It's not a political or a philosophical question. And it's a question that science has fully answered. It's spelled out in every embryology book, and there's overwhelming scientific consensus that life begins at conception. And if they want more information, so they want more than that 30-second answer, I, I love, there's a study, a survey that came out in the last year and a half. It's over 5,000 biologists at over 1,000 worldwide institutions, and they were asked, does life begin at conception? And a full 96% of the biologists say life begins at conception. Now, interestingly, the pro-choice movement was upset and said this must be a biased study. And they're right, it is a biased study, but it's biased against the pro-life movement because nearly 90% are pro-choice, are secular and progressive. That's how they self-identified. So if these people said 96%, you know there's overwhelming conception. So I always say, let's begin with the most basic facts. 
life begins at conception. And most people then give up that argument because that really is an argument they lost a long time ago. And yeah. that, that's the, one of the classic arguments. And, and then the other arguments fall into the, you know, the autonomy category, the my body, my well, choice. Again, let me, let's just stay sure. with that life, uh, uh, being alive issue. Because one of the things I also like to mention to folks is that at the moment the sperm enters the ovum, all the DNA that that person is ever going to have is already there. Is that true? Absolutely. So, and there is it are also a, a sequence of DNA that is unique to that person at that moment. Where were you when I was writing the book? I could have used you. Um, you're exactly right. So there are, depending who you read, there are seven or eight criteria that must be met to be called alive. And this is also in the book. If this is an, if this is how you like to argue, so. Do you have unique genetic information? Do you have, are you capable of growth and metabolism? Can you, um, and homeostasis, can you respond to stimuli? Do you have your own reproductive capacity and your own unique genetic information? If you meet these categories, you are, you are alive by every scientific definition. And, and those that also convince a lot of people, sure. One of the things too, so f because not all of us are as familiar with you know, the medical terminology. When you say that you're capable of metabolism, what does that mean? That means you're able to take in nutrients and utilize them on your own. Okay. Uh, for your own for your own personal growth. And so eating this is you notice <laughs> it, absolutely so so this was this this argument is one I usually don't use because it I have to then go into detail with it. But for some people, if you're talking with a science and I was debating this online, which I usually don't like to do with, with a chemist this week. And I was able to go to the scientific terminology because that's the language sure. that this chemist would understand. Exactly. So again, you, you, that's why the book has multiple options for these arguments. You find the one that works for you in the setting that you're trying to use it. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so being able to take in nutrition in the case of a, 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 a baby in the womb, it comes through the umbilical cord, correct? Absolutely. But, that's, that it, but one the of our child criteria. is taking in nutrients from the mother into his own, and, and it does, when the child takes in those nutrients, does it make the mother's body grow? No, obviously it's making the child's body grow. You know, a lot of times you're bringing up an argument that they make. This is just a body part. The mother has an additional body part, like it's a tonsil um, or the appendix. And, and there, again, we have to get scientific. And there's a definition of a, a scientific definition about what a body part is. A body part has the same genetic code as the parent, and it doesn't uh, control its own development. Mm -hmm. and, and in this case, an embryo and fetus are clearly, they, con they control their own development, and they have a different genetic code. In fact, a different sex half the time than the mother. Yep. So they don't meet the definition of body part. And these are the same arguments, the same train of thought they try to, once they say, okay, maybe it's alive, then they want to say it's not a person, or they say it's not a human. And it's the same faulty logic, and we could talk about all of those as well. You know, they, well, they want to say- Well, go ahead, start, you brought it up. Sure, sure. Are they human? Sure, sure. Yeah, so obviously we're not talking about an eggplant or a bicycle. That, you know, we have, the, to be a human is just to be a member of the species Homo sapiens. It's a clear and easy answer. Personhood is a little more esoteric. But personhood is always a manufactured term that's used whenever we want to subjugate a class of people. We've used it against blacks that weren't persons. We've used it against women who are not persons. We've used it against immigrants for use who are not persons. To be a person is to be a human being 
period. It's the only objective criteria. And in fact, pull out your Merriam-Webster's dictionary right now and look up person. You'll see that number one definition is human being. Again, we try to weaponize the term when we want to subjugate a class of people, and we won't do that. And see, I, I think, you know, I, from little I know the law, I have tried to use the parallels to the Dred Scott decision that denied African descent people the right to freedom and, and citizenship because they are inherently inferior. That was, right. that was we, a false argument, an absolutely. evil argument and I, at that. Absolutely. And I, and I use that argument a lot when people say to me, Roe is settled law. It's settled law. And I always remind people, bad precedent is no precedent. And the Supreme Court has held that over and over. Otherwise, blacks would not be citizens of this country. Separate but equal facilities, uh, black water fountains and white water fountains would be the rule of law in this country. And thank God that's not the case. Because right. bad law is no precedent. Bad precedent is no precedent. And I've brought up that the Democratic candidate for Senate, who then became the Democratic candidate for the presidency in 1858 and in 1860, used the argument, Supreme Court said that blacks cannot be citizens and don't have rights, and it settled law. That was exactly their argument in the election that led to the Civil War. You know, we have, you know, the, the Constitution isn't necessarily dynamic, but constitutional adjudication is dynamic. And there's criteria for overturning precedent. We don't need to memorize what they are, but we need to know that they exist. And in the leaked Alito opinion, for instance, he goes through five criteria that are used to, to assess whether a case should be overturned. Um, and in this case, they use all five. If this opinion holds, we, we won't know, obviously, for a while. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but bad precedent is no precedent, and thank God, bad precedent is no is is no precedent. Right. So, so that's the alive. That it's not a person. It's not a human. The classic other one is the autonomy arguments. It's the my body, my choice arguments. And here we have again multiple options with which to respond to this. And and what I try to do in the, in these arguments, wherever I can agree on some part, I go for the agreement. So when somebody talks about my body, I I tell them I fully support the right of a woman to do whatever she wants to her own body. I just don't believe she has the right to do what she wants to someone else's body. And a pregnancy always involves two bodies, sometimes more. As a matter that's of fact, the, the, could, could yeah. we would be okay? I'd like to play a clip of the first trimester of life and the heartbeat of a baby in the womb. So if you mind, we'll, we'll just go to that right now. heartbeat is not the same as the mother's heartbeat, is it? No, absolutely not. There, the, one of the new arguments that was first put forward by the New York Times about a year and a half ago is they decided, again, everything is rhetorical deception. They want to find some way of, of attacking the facts, the truth, and the science. So what we've always called a fetal heartbeat, we can watch a four, an ultrasound, which is what you're listening to there, we can watch the four-chamber view in action. And as a radiologist, I see that all the time. 
Mm -hmm. um, we call it a fetal heartbeat. You can see it and you can hear it. The New York Times now calls that fetal pulsations because we want to somehow dehumanize what is clearly a human being. It's shame. It's shameful because because to be a, to to support the pro-choice cause, you you must be blind to the truth, you must be deaf to the truth, and you must never ever speak the truth. Now, if you if the New York Times writers were to say these are pulsations, would it be logical to ask them pulsations of what? Would that right. be I mean, a proper the, question? Right. The, their arguments always fall apart. That's why I, I get so very excited about, about this movement. It's a winning movement. If you learn your arguments, you convert people every single day. You know, I do a lot of apostolate for our faith, and there we plant seeds, and we may never see the fruits of our, our, yeah. of our labor. Uh, and, and I find it, I, it's a lack of patience and a, and a poor character trait I have. I get frustrated when I can't convert people. It's a frustrating thing because you have to be patient and we don't know when those conversions happen. Yeah. That's not the case in, the, in, in this pro-life movement. On a daily basis, people change their minds when they talk to me. They, I don't give them one argument and they suddenly become radically pro-life. But a five or ten minute conversation, and I have them at least down to ten weeks. And that's a wonderful first start. That's a wonderful start. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm extremely optimistic about the, the future of, of the pro-life movement. I think, it's, I what, think it's a winning cause. Now, what are some of the other arguments that the pro-choice, pro-abortion uh, folks bring up? So the other one that goes with the my body is the my body, my choice. And again, I try to start off with having some agreement with them. And I tell them, yes, a woman should always have the right to choose. I agree completely with that. But the choice she has is not whether or not to kill her baby. The choice is whether or not to have sex in the first place. And if she's going to have sex in the first place, she does so under understanding the risk that she may create another living baby inside her. And if she's accepting that risk, she's going to have to accept the possibility that she's going to have to carry that burden, which can be a significant burden for nine months, when the only alternative is killing a child. Because when we when we talk about these these right, rights, we're talking about competing rights, which is which is justice, you know, giving each person their due. And for a woman, we're talking about the right to a, a lifestyle free of a burden, a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. With the baby, we're talking about the the right to not be killed, the actual right to life itself. Mm -hmm. And lifestyle versus life is an easy debate. Life always has to trump lifestyle. Now. Here's one of the arguments I'm aware of that because it gets brought up. What about the situation in which a woman is forced uh, to sex sure. and say a rape? Well, I've lost one of my audio things, but I can still hear you. Yeah. Um, okay. yeah rape. There are a few issues that I always make sure we address when we talk about rape. Mm -hmm. And the very first one, and I've learned this by responses to my book. Where I've, where I've messed up. The first response when somebody talks about rape is to be sympathetic and compassionate because the person mm -hmm. who's bringing it up may have been someone who experienced the actual horror, the trauma, and the violence of rape. Right. So the first thing we do is we show them our compassion. And I'm not talking about fake compassion for strategy standpoint. I'm talking extending love to the person who might be suffering. That's I, the first thing I do. Yeah, I mean, this is... 
an absolutely wicked and horrific attack on the dignity of that woman. Absolutely. Uh, this, this is unconscionable behavior to force a woman to such uh, a thing. And, and we're off. Yeah, and we're often accused in the pro-life movement of only worried about the baby and not worrying about the mother. And sometimes that's true. I don't think it's certainly not entirely true. And this is an example where we not need to stop and focus on the suffering of the woman that we're speaking with. That's very important. When I get to the actual merits of the discussions, again, I find some agreement. But I point out that, that the, the, the arguments about rape and incest, which are almost always the first arguments made, they're a rare exception in, in these abortion cases. They make up, rape and incest make up less than one half of 1% of the cases that we're talking about. So it's an attempt to make the very rare exceptional case, uh, the, we, we want, they're trying to make it apply to all cases. And we never make the exceptional case the basis of the law. So I tell these people, if rape and incest are your concerns, we can work together on that. But can I assume then that you're pro-life for the other 99 percent of cases, then we've really got some common ground to go on. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's where I, that's the next thing that I talk about. And then the, then the third thing, if I feel I can do it, and I have to feel the situation out. If I'm sure. speaking to a woman who's who's experiencing trauma, I, I'm very sensitive about pushing things. But if I can get into a real intellectual discussion, I say with compassion, I said, the violence of abortion can never be the solution of of the violence of rape. Where else do we solve one violent act with another equally horrible, horrible act? And that a child is a child regardless of, of how they were conceived. But again, to tell that to a woman who was just raped, it's almost an insensitive thing to do. So we need to treat, we need to treat victims with compassion first before we can make our arguments. Because in and, the end, we talk about... And, and one of the I'm things I, of I often add is that in the case of uh, rape, you know, if you catch the rapist, you are not allowed by the Constitution or by any state law to take a chainsaw and cut off the guy's arms and cut off his legs and crush his skull. You may not do that. And if you... Yeah know that it would be immoral to do this to the perpetrator of this grave evil, then why would you extend that to the innocent victim of that same person? The child is as much a victim as is the mother. In a different way, she has another kind of pain and discomfort that the child may not have, but he's still a victim. And you don't do to the victim what you would never and never should do to the perp. This is very important. Uh, Dr. Christie, if you don't mind, we need to take a little break uh, uh, at this point. We're going to come back in another minute. Uh, but I just want to let people know that you can go to uh, a website called speakingfortheunborn.com. Speaking for the unborn.com to learn more about Dr. Christie's work. We'll be right back. I want to get more of your arguments back and forth on this issue. So uh, you and our audience, please stay with us.
right, we are speaking to Dr. Stephen A. Christie, who has written a new book called Speaking for the Unborn, 32nd Pro-Life Rebuttals to Pro-Choice Arguments. And of course, Dr. Christie is both a medical doctor and a lawyer. And so he's got a lot of background in these areas. And his book is available at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 1875. Okay. All right. Dr. Christie, we've been talking about some of the arguments that are brought up uh, by the pro-choice supporters. Now, what would be some of the other arguments? Some of the classic ones we all... Sure. Some of the classic ones we hear a lot today, especially with the current administration, is about about how bad it is to impose our beliefs on other people. And I get this personally all the time in my discussions and debates, sure. that it's wrong to be imposing our personal beliefs on others. And and I remind people that that's nonsense, that we, we all impose our moral beliefs on others every single day. And that's the basis of a moral society, that on critical moral issues like rape and murder and theft and kidnapping, kidnapping, we never rely on the moral con- uh, conscience of each person to decide their behavior. We declare those behaviors immoral, illegal, and if you do them, we'll throw you in jail. So the idea that we don't impose our moral beliefs on others is nonsense. Every one of us does it every single day. Yeah. Uh, and, and, the, and the corollary to that is what we hear in the current administration by a, a particular gentleman who says, you know, I'm, I'm personally pro-life, but, but who am I to impose your, my views on other people? Um, which is really a, a, a very a wimpy way of approaching life. Again, on these critical moral issues, it's immoral not to impose So one of the classic arguments is always, can you imagine me saying to you, you know, I'm personally against slavery. I would never, ever have a slave. But if you want a slave or two, that's none of my business. You know, that's okay with you. Who am I to impose my belief on you? Obviously, it's nonsense. To not impose morality on critical moral issues in society is frankly immoral, yeah. and and I think we have to be able to, we have to be ready to explain that clearly and crisp, crisply to people because we have leaders of this country, you know, making an argument that we somehow need to impose these views on other people. For some reason, we, we say rape, we have no problem saying rape is wrong, and we impose a penalty for doing it. But murdering a child, it's a, it's a nonsense argument. Though, you know, and we have to keep in mind that there have been attempts to even change some of those kind of moral positions um, that, well, you know, rape is not really a great thing, but you have to understand that that rapist just has a drive within him and, you know, he can't help himself. And changing laws and and changing the punishments about rape is being proposed and has been proposed. And so it's, you know, in in the present relativistic uh, society where, well, I've got my belief, but, you know, maybe somebody else, uh, you know, a a famous case going on now, uh, one professor wants to stop calling pedophilia, pedophilia, and just talk about being, you know, interested in minors. Uh, 
you know, it, it, so we have to deal with, you know, questions about this being inherently wrong, for instance, to force somebody to intimacy, force through rape. That, that's just inherently wrong uh, to, to impose yourself on somebody. And that sometimes may have to be discussed along with the question of uh, pro-choice and pro-life uh, issues. Right. All of these factors have led, and they all interact, to leading to a defective human anthropology. And that's where our own personal sovereignty is all that matters in life. And if that's what you believe, then anything that gets in your way has to be destroyed and sacrificed. And that means whether it's a law that gets in your way, whether it's, a, whether it's an adult that gets in your way, or whether it's an unborn baby that gets in your way, that, that we sacrifice those on the altar of our own personal sovereignty. And that's because we live in this culture where modern secular society tells us that life is about ourself. We have to find ourselves. Mm -hmm. We have to be true to ourselves. We have to express ourselves. We have self-esteem is everything. We take, uh, you know, with our phones all day long, selfies while we eat our toothpaste sandwich, share that with the world. Self, self, self. And Christianity, again, usually I, we can talk about the value of religious arguments, but Christianity is also about the self in a radically different way. We talk about selflessness. I feel funny telling this to a priest, but we, we talk about selflessness and self-sacrifice, self-denial and self-control and self-giving. So for, for Christians, when we talk about self, it's about losing ourself in the service of others. That's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. and, and that leads to a, a true human anthropology where we're not pit, where women are not pitted against their very, their very own children. And, and all of that leads to this moral relativism, which is, which we're suffering from right now. And you can look at the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, where you have Justice Kennedy saying, all of us are entitled to decide what the meaning of the universe is and, and what, what the meaning of life is. It's no longer a scientific question, according to him. It's, it's just a personal feeling. You know, if you think a two-year-old's alive, it's alive. If you don't think it's alive, it's not alive. It's just a personal matter. It's just a personal matter. That's moral relativism that, that feeds to a, a destructive anthropology. Yeah, I mean, and it's going so far that uh, the uh, newest uh, justice of the Supreme Court uh, could not state in the hearings about her qualifications, she couldn't state what a woman is. And it's the same kind of issue that there's a fear to make that kind of decision. She's not an ignorant person by any means. But it's about a relativistic worldview where I can't say if somebody is a woman or not. You know, um, you know so th this gets into, um, you know, a funny business. Then arguing for any moral issue in that kind of world becomes uh, very difficult. Yeah, the the pro-choice side survives on those three monkeys that see no evil, hear no evil, and speak no evil. And that's why this justice, who by all accounts is a brilliant and accomplished woman, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. she certainly knows what a woman was. She could articulate it. I'm certainly certainly much better than I could as I get nervous on these on these podcasts here. But she knows she if she's going to be a part of that movement, she doesn't dare speak the truth you can't do it if you want to if you want to maintain this denial if you want to maintain this denial you can't ever speak the truth and if yeah. you can do that for a couple of generations society is going to forget what that truth is entirely and that's where we get this culture of death 
And that's the result of maintaining this, this deafness, this blindness, and we never speak the truth. And that's why we have to call that living baby a clump of cells. And that's why when we hear the, hear the fetal heartbeat, we have to say it's fetal pulsations. Uh, and, and, and that's why when, when, we see, when we see the baby, we don't recognize that as being a baby. So we know, we know the truth, and the truth will come out. The truth will out. Yeah. But we have, we, have to, we have to stick with it. Yeah. Are there, what are some of the other arguments that you are trying to deal with? Well, as, as a man, well, I get a, uh, my wife is very active in the pro-life movement. She's much more articulate and much more accomplished than I am. But I get some unique arguments being a man in this world. So all the time I'm told I don't have a role, I don't have a role to play. Um, and there's a lot of categories about, uh, about men versus women. And one of the categories all the time is that abortion somehow empowers women. And, and what I, we always say is that abortion has never empowered women, but it has empowered men who want to use exploit and then abandon women at their most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It has normalized men's ability to exploit, manipulate, and, uh, and abuse women. And somehow we're supposed to say this empowers women. Men are also told that we're not allowed to speak on this. You have no uterus, no opinion. Um, and in those cases, it offers you a lot of options. But I usually echo the words of Martin Luther King and Abraham Lincoln. And I say that it's immoral and cowardly to allow yourself to be silenced on critical moral issues based on your sex or your skin color. Uh, and any arguments to the contrary are <laughs> bigoted and sexist and racist. And again, appealing to social justice usually quiets down those arguments. Mm -hmm. They also talk about that, that the movement itself is men subjugating women. And then you could just, again, we stick to fact. We point out that men... Polling, polling shows men are less opposed to abortion. They're not the leaders of this. That the volunteers in pregnancy crisis centers throughout the country are women, they're not men. And that the leaders of every major pro-life group in the United States, they're led by women, not men. So the idea that this is a movement of men to subjugate women is pure nonsense. We have to just show the facts. You can't, you can't debate the facts. Yeah, and, and even the, the, the premise that if you don't have a uterus, you can't have an opinion. You know, what is the logical starting point for that? You know, how, uh, that, that's simply a way to disenfranchise the opinions of men, not at all unlike the way African-Americans were disenfranchised for what the, for the way they were born. And you know, disenfranchisement of women who could not vote because they were born women was wrong. And disenfranchisement of men is of the same order. This is it's not a logical argument. I, I would be very much in favor of women having the vote and the right to print and do all the everything else they do. And I can't disenfranchise them in an argument to say, well, you're just, you know, a, you're a woman and you're, you have the uh, responsibility of carrying the baby, so you can't make a decision about the baby. It's as logical as that. They're just, these are not real arguments. Um, when, you, when you don't have an argument, you start name calling. So. I'm called you know, a misogynist. That's the answer. I give an argument, 
a coherent argument? And the answer is, I'm a misogynist, that somehow I hate my own wife, I, who's a strong, brilliant, wonderful woman, a wonderful husband, a wonderful mother. I somehow don't care about her. And my two of my five children are daughters who are strong, capable, intelligent, powerful women. But somehow I don't care about their, their life, their health care. So I always tell these people, look, I'm not anti-woman. I'm just anti-killing. And I point out, in fact, since nearly half a million baby girls are aborted in the United States alone each year, my position is fiercely pro-woman. Yeah. So really, really, their arguments don't hold up. That's, again, why I'm so optimistic about this cause. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there some of the other arguments that you discuss in your book? What would be some of the other ways that you want well, to uh, have us approach the, the, these issues? Sure. So another category is so we talk about burdens on women. And again, we uh-huh. need to be sympathetic on this. So we say, you know, having a baby can be terribly inconvenient, you know, because uh, it would interfere with their school or they couldn't afford a baby right now or it would impact the rest of their family. And those are real issues. And it's very important, again, when we talk about strategy and we talk about being compassionate and, and winning hearts for us to say, well, too bad. Too bad. You should have thought about that ahead of time. That's, that's not what we do, because abortion isn't a sign that women are free. It's a sign that they're desperate. So if you find a woman who's frightened and desperate because she's pregnant, but she was in school and doesn't know how she's going to survive, and she has other children, and it's going to interfere with her lives, the pro-life movement needs to rush to that woman's aid. Now, we're criticized a lot for not doing that. It's not entirely a fair criticism, but we can certainly do better than we're doing right now. So we rush to them because being a burden on women is never justification for dismembering a living human baby. Solutions based on killing living human beings are never accepted. And we have to just reiterate that line over and over and over. And that's why I tell people this in the book. You need to know the resources in your community that are available for desperate pregnant women. So have the numbers on hand. Where is the pregnancy crisis center? Where is their financial support? Where is their emotional support? Where is there, is there a domestic violence hotline uh, that you need to call? Is there a temporary housing that you can do on behalf? So it's one thing to say, you better not abort your baby and point your finger and then walk away. It's another thing to say, ma'am, how can we help you keep this pregnancy? Let's work together. I have lots of resources. I'm going to help get them to you. Come with me. Let's chat. And that's what we need to do. We need to embrace these women because these women are desperate and frightened and are in a position where they can go one direction and make a big mistake, or we can lead them into a loving and productive decision that everybody wins. And you know, I think that also includes, and I know that this happens in a number of the pro-life centers, if the woman is unable financially or for other reasons like school and such to raise that child nobody expects her to have to keep it we can help her to find a family that will care and raise uh, that child and help bring that child up you know that there are a lot of folks who would love to have that child i i hear from them on a regular basis that they, they would Absolutely. love to adopt a child um, for someone who cannot afford to keep their child, even if they're married. 
Even if it's a married Absolutely. woman, she can also give her child up for adoption if she is in a crisis situation, and we should be able to be there to help her with the prenatal care as well as adoption. Absolutely, and there's a big difference between an unwanted pregnancy and an unwanted child. There's an estimated two million families in the U.S. alone that are waiting for a baby to adopt. Mm -hmm. So it may be unwanted in its, in, with the mother that has it, sometimes for very good and valid reasons, that she can't handle it, uh, her life is complicated, there's illness, there's all sorts of issues, but that baby is wanted, and we need to make sure it's wanted. And that, you know, that brings to mind another one of the criticisms we get a lot that, that, is, that offends me, but I try not to get, get worked up about it, is we're told all the time that we only care about babies in the uterus and that we don't care about babies. You conservatives and you pro-life people don't care about babies once they're born. And this is factually inaccurate. And we need to know yep. the statistics. And, you know, for, you know conservatives, uh, pro-lifes, uh, religious, we give more of our money and more of our time than the secular, progressive, pro-choice people. We adopt far and away more babies than the, pro than the secular, liberal, pro-choice movement. So for a, a progressive pro-choice person to say, we don't care, when they're giving less money, less of their time, and adopting fewer babies, it makes no sense. It doesn't, that argument doesn't hold water, and we need to know those facts. Having said that, though, can we do more? Mm -hmm. And we absolutely have to. We sure. absolutely have to. It's just, it's just not right to say, don't have a baby, have a nice day, good luck. We have to be out there yeah. helping babies. You know, my, my, our youngest child is, a, is, a, is adopted, and I'm not, any, I'm not some wonderful swell guy any more nice than the next guy, so it's not, it isn't, I don't adopt it because it made me a loving, wonderful guy. I mean, it, I hope I am a bit, but my life would be almost nothing without her. I thank God every day. She is proof of God. And one of my favorite things that, that becoming a Catholic has done for me is my daughter's 15, our daughter's 15 now, we adopted her nine months old. And, they, and she learns about adoption as she gets older. But you, what you tell a two-year-old is different than a four-year-old and an eight-year-old and a fourteen-year-old. And one thing I've always been able to tell her, and, and it's, it's, it's the truest thing I've ever said about my faith. I said, you know, she says, well, why was I given up? And I tell her, I don't know. But one thing I do know, God made you for me and your mother. 8,000 miles across the world. We don't know why. We don't know how. But God made you for us. And I know that as much as I know anything in my life. So adoption has made my life not just a little more complete. It made my life all the complete that it is. So I encourage people every day, go out there and extend yourself. And, and you'll find love that you couldn't imagine. Couldn't imagine. Yeah. And, and I think uh, I'd also like to extend this out to the many grandparents who are now raising children that neither their sons nor their daughters want to raise. And some of them also to extend out to them, you know, there are younger folks, because it's hard for folks in their 70s to, or 60s even to raise an infant. It's just physically hard given changes in the elderly person's body and, and nervous system, et cetera, and that there'd be other persons that would be willing to accept them 
and raise them and work out a, a good relationship so that you still have contact. We can be creative about God's creation of life. And this is a very important thing. The answer is not what, you know, my, I mentioned my hometown is Chicago uh, from Illinois. The governor and the mayor there are saying they want to make Illinois a sanctuary for abortion. Sanctuary is the opposite. Sanctuary is where you go to protect life from attack. And to say a sanctuary for death in a city and state where death is already rampant and you want the taxpayers to pay for more death when we already have too much? No. We, I think this is one of the key issues with this pro-life stance is that as we fight for the life of the most innocent, we teach the society to respect life at the other stages as well. No murder, no rape, no, all these respect begins at the outset. I, I agree completely. And this is just a result of losing, losing sight of the truth for a couple of generations. And, yeah. and moral relativism leads to this monstrous approach to life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and one of the things I've also found very useful uh, in, in this discussion has to do with religion. And we touched about it a little bit before, and that is having come from a secular background. And I, I've learned that that when you're debating these cases with people and you I, I stick to my arguments, as this book does, based on science, the law, reason, morality, social justice and the visible evidence. Um, and if I'm, unless I'm speaking with a religious person, I, I, I stick to these non-religious arguments because if I've made nine religious arguments based on science and reason and morality and social justice, but then I say the word God or sanctity of yeah, life, you lose them. I lose them. It's yeah. a club with which they hit me over the head. But, but I would, I would well, like to say, I just, I'm, sorry, I, I'm afraid I have to jump in because we're in our last few seconds. Sure. Uh, and all I can do at this point is, is thank you for this. Hope people get your book, Speaking for the Unborn, 30-Second Pro-Life Rebuttals for Pro-Choice Arguments by Stephen A. Christie. And may Almighty God bless you and all of our viewers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Amen. Christie, and thank all of you.